Well, it's actually um, appropriate that we be doing a digital-only service today uh, because in this text, Paul kind of, he kind of just, well, he's, he's, he tells it like it is, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but he, he talks about being stripped of everything. And the longer that the lockdowns have gone on, and now they're being uh, increased, and there's various different criteria to decide when they're going to end and if they're going to end, uh, one of the interesting things that's happening is a lot of people who are involved in um, psychological research are wondering uh, the extent to which uh, extended lockdowns are going to have a negative impact on uh, children's development and adult ability uh, to weather depression and anxiety. It turns out that uh, kids especially benefit from uh, social interaction because their brains are still developing. So if you're under the age of 30, uh, your brain is, is still getting stronger and there's more connections being made. If you're, after, if you're, if you're post-30, your brain is degrading at, at, some, at various you know, rates. Uh, but for kids, their, their brains are developing. And, and we know uh, from a lot of studies, neurological studies, that social interaction is one of the best ways to develop um, kids' brains. And so there's a lot of questions where they're like, well, is you know, social media going to be enough to, to foster the kind of connections that uh, traditionally have been part of ch- child development and teen development? Because now there's, you know, there's not a lot of choices, right? Uh, to the extent that, that, that people actually do the lockdown. And, and, and if you've noticed, you've noticed that kids, by and large, are the ones who are <laughs> the least likely to obey uh, the lockdown orders. It's not just kids who are affected by lockdowns, though. It's adults as well, because um, adult satisfaction in life is highly correlated to uh, social interaction. Um, and, and for a different reason than kids. Our uh, adults, our brains are not developing. Like I said, they're, they're slowly fading in, into mush. But before that happens, we as adults find that a lot of our desires are sort of dependent on being in social situations. And so a big one, for example, is that people uh, find that, they, that status is very important. They need to be affirmed by other people. Uh, so, it's, so people will, will operate in such a way that they look, you know, they want to make sure that they look like they're a really great person, right? And they're, they're doing a good job at their office, for example. And so when, uh, you know, when they're doing a good job at the office, the employer is like, hey, well, good job. Thanks so much for your hard work. And that's very meaningful and very important for, for adult satisfaction. It's not just um, it's not just status, of course. It's it's also a sense of connection, right? Uh, human beings are social animals, and so when we're you know taken away from each other, that that primal desire to be together is it's ripped away, and so we're actually conducting a massive culture worldwide psychological experiment to see how how long human beings can go when deprived of some of these basic needs, which I probably shouldn't be laughing because it's kind of scary. Well, Paul was deprived of all those needs. And in this text, uh, this is probably um, Paul's most, let's just call it what it is, his most ironic, sarcastic, acerbic. Paul's really riled up. He's salty. Um, I, I, this is my translation of Philippians 3, 1 to 9a, and I, I've really done everything I can to make, it, to make it hit you the way it would have hit the Philippians when they read it. When they received it, Paul says, finally, my brothers and sisters, take joy in the Lord. Writing these same things, you could say over and over again to you, doesn't annoy me. It keeps you safe. Watch out for dogs. 
Watch out for evildoers. Watch out for the chopping. Listen, we are the circumcision. We are the ones who serve God by his spirit, who brag on Messiah Jesus. We don't depend on human actions or standards, though I have good reason to have this kind of confidence. If anyone else has reason to put their confidence in physical advantages, I have even more. Here it is, eighth-day circumcision, people of Israel, Benjamin's tribe, Hebrew of Hebrews. In terms of Torah observance, a Pharisee. As far as zeal, an oppressor of the church. And as to righteousness that is in Torah, not a single blemish on my record. Whatever prophets these things were to me, I've written them off as a loss for Christ's sake. But it goes further. I count every single thing as a loss when compared to the sublimity of an intimate relationship with Messiah Jesus my Lord, for whom I've been stripped of everything. I consider it all crap, so I might gain Christ and be found in him. I'm telling you, this is Paul at his, he's raw here. And I'll explain that as we, as we go through. But it starts very quickly. He's talking about dogs. He's talking about evildoers, the chopping. Uh, what does this mean? Well, Paul's actually referring to, uh, the, he's referring to Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus. Okay? And not only do they not believe in Jesus, they're trying to get the Christians to become Jews, to do what Jewish people do. And one thing we know about Jewish people is that at the, in the first century, they had a very dim view of, of dirty Gentiles like us. And so they had an epithet for people who were not Jewish. They called us dogs. Now, that might sound nice to us because we think of dogs as like as cute little golden retrievers that lick our face, and they're, and they're snuggly. Um, if you've ever been to the third world, you know what dogs are like. Uh, and in the ancient world, it's even worse than, uh, than, than the dogs in Haiti. Dogs were... Um, were disease-ridden, um, vile uh, scavengers. And, and dogs were uh, more, uh, more likely to be kicked than they were to be snuggled in the ancient world. And so Jewish people, Jewish people would call non-Jews dogs because not, they, they saw us as dirty. We eat pork. We don't wash all the time, right? Um, it, they would be, you know, Jewish people love COVID-19 because there's more, you know, ritual washing and protection from, from, from grossness. They, they, they looked at Gentiles as these disgusting animals, and so they called us dogs. Well, Paul's flipping the script. He's like, you think we're the dogs? You're the dogs. Uh, by the way, this is not an excuse for anti-Semitism. Um, this is a cultural context in which uh, the, the non-believing Jews were, were harassing and hurting the church. They were in a position of power over the church. Um, it's not, the, don't, don't go around, you know, calling your Jewish friends dogs because that's totally inappropriate. The next, evildoers. Watch out for evildoers. He's being ironic again. If there's one thing Jewish people in the first century thought that they were, they were doing the right thing. Why? Because they followed the Old Testament law. They, they were very assiduous about it. And they looked at everybody else in the world and they said, you're all evildoers. You don't know what God wants and you're certainly not doing it. Paul's flipping the script. He's like, no, no, no. We're not the ones who are evildoers. It's you're the evildoers for trying to make us do what you're supposed to do. Ironic, again, because Paul's Jewish or, you know. He's going to remind us of that in a second. The last thing, watch out for the chopping. It's hard to get this, uh, to, to get Paul's pun here in English. There's, there's two words. One word is like chopping up into pieces, and that's uh, katatorme. And then there's the word in Greek for uh, circumcision, that's paratorme. You hear that torme, right? That's the, the cutting part. And kata means dicing it up, and para means going around. Okay, and so katatorme is chopping something up into pieces, butchering something, and and paratorme is 
performing ritual circumcision, taking the foreskin off of the part. So Paul's, Paul, he's, he's giving them an ironic name. The Jews have come to the, the, the Christians. There's like, if you want to be the people of God, you've got to... And if you're an adult male, that's pretty frightening. And Paul's like, that's not circumcision. They're not promoting the circumcision. They're promoting butchery, the chopping. We are the circumcision. What's going on here? Why is Paul so, like, just out of the gate, like, just going after um, these, these uh, Jews who don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah? Well, 1992, Sister Act, Whoopi Goldberg. There's a film that I can't stand. Like, Aaron makes me watch Sister Act from, from time to time, or Sister Act 2, which is even worse. Um, but, I mean, I get why people like it. It's cute. But it, it plays on the trope of the... the Whoopi Goldberg plays um, a, a lounge singer. I think her name's Lorraine. And uh, she's dating a mobster, and she sees him kill somebody. And so she's put into uh, witness protection. And, and the place they put her in witness protection... Remember, she's a lounge singer. She's, you know, living large, you know, drug, sex, rock and roll. That's her deal. She's put into a convent in San Francisco, and she pretends to be a Catholic nun. And she can't stand it. They call her Sister Mary Clarence. What's interesting, though, is over the course of the movie, you know, this, this saucy, you know, this scrappy, like, fun-loving lady, she, she actually not only transforms the convent, but the convent transforms her. And so she starts out as, like, this, this lounge singer, and at the end of the movie, there's almost a sense in which she's maybe debating whether or not to come back to her Catholic faith and perhaps even join the convent as a nun. Crazy! I think in the end, she ends up not becoming a nun, but she does, she, like, takes the kids on, like, a tour of, I don't know, it's dumb, but you can watch it if you want. What's that? It's not dumb at all. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, working from the heart there. Come on, Tom. It's a heartwarming film. There it is. Thanks, John. I, I'm with you, man. Right, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Whatever, however you feel about Sister Act. The point is, is that this is exactly what Paul's worried is going to happen to the Christians in Philippi. The Christians in Philippi are being attacked by the culture. The culture around them is assaulting them and, and saying, we don't like you. And so they're looking for protection. One place they can go would be the synagogue. They could go to be with their religious cousins, the Jewish people, right? And so some of the Philippians kind of made some overtures in the, to, the, to the synagogue and said, hey, friends, could we kind of like hide amongst you for a while just until, you know, the, the, the hit or until we testify and the hit on our head goes away? Can we just, you know, stay with you? And the, and the, the, the non-believing Jewish people are like, oh, yeah, sure. You dogs. You scumbags, you dirty animals, you, you evildoers, come on over. But you're going to have to make some changes, right? The evildoing is going to have to go out the window. You're going to have to do all the things that we do. Sabbath, no pork, you know, all the, the, the washing, the sacrifices. It's all going to have to happen. One more thing. And the situation in Philippi is so bad that the Christians are considering this. They're thinking it might be a good idea for adult males to go through circumcision if it protects them. 
Just something that's always true of minorities, the first thing in your, in your note sheet is that persecuted minorities are always tempted to conformity. And the Christians are tempted to conformity with non-Messianic Judaism. Because it's safe. Well, Paul's not having any of that. Nope. No, no. And, and why not? Why is this such a problem? Well, Paul says it in the very next sentence. Going back to the text, he says, We are the circumcision. Cutting off foreskins, that does not make you, that doesn't make you a people of God. The, the, my Jewish cousins and friends, they're wrong about that. Why? Well, because they don't serve God by the Holy Spirit. You, Christians, you believe you have the Spirit, and so you're able to serve and worship in the Spirit. The Spirit is real, and the Spirit doesn't care whether or not you've been circumcised, and doesn't care whether or not you've eaten pork, and doesn't care about the Sabbath, doesn't care about a lot of things. And moreover, we're the ones who brag not on our status in the law, not because we've had this ancestor, not because we've done these things. We brag on Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah. He's the one who saved us. We depend on him, not on human standards or actions. Uh, Greek there, ensarchy, in the flesh. um, Those who have confidence in the flesh, I've said we don't depend on human actions or standards because flesh can be kind of a weird thing to to get our our heads around. But but what Paul's saying is he's like he's like looking at all the different things that 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 human beings look look to and depend on to say this this shows that I'm good with God. It shows I'm part of God's people. And this is something that human beings have dealt with all throughout history. All throughout religious history, human beings have always been wondering what it takes to be part of God's people. My son's name is Soren. He's named after Soren Kierkegaard. This is a picture of Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard looks good in his, his, his drawings because he didn't live to be old. So we only have pictures of him when he was young. He was a Danish uh, theologian and philosopher. He was afflicted by mental illness. He had a very difficult time dealing with the world. But what one of the lasting impressions he left is he, he said things like this. The worst thing to happen to Christianity is Christendom. He said the worst thing about Christianity is that by living in a state, Denmark, that says it's Christian, all the people around me think that they're Christians. And I can tell you they're not. Why do they think they're Christians? Well, because they were born in Denmark. Denmark is a Christian nation. They go to a Lutheran church on Sunday. They listen to it. They're well-dressed. They obey all of the laws. They're good Danish people. And all Danish people are Christians. And so they think they're Christians. And I'm telling you, they are not. They depend on being Danish. They depend on being Lutheran. They depend on having this sort of life set out where they do this, this, and this. They get married. They have children. Those are the things that make them Christian. That's not what Christianity is, Soren Kierkegaard railed. He said they depend on these human standards, human actions, and they've deceived themselves. They've missed the core, the kernel of what genuine faith is. It's faith, it's trust, it's belief. These people don't believe in anything except the next paycheck and the economy and the stability of their family and not getting sick. That's what they believe in. They don't believe in Jesus. And Kierkegaard, uh, he said, near the end of his life, he said, my job is to make Christians uncomfortable. 
to remind them that it's not about being Danish. It's not about being a good human. That's not what we depend on. We depend on faith, trust. Next thing, your note sheets. Nothing but faith in Christ can truly make us God's people. It's no different now than it was in Philippi. In Philippi, the, the, Jews were, the, the non-believing Jews were telling the, the Gentile church, you've got to be chopped, you've got you to be doing this. That's how you know you're God's people. No, there's nothing that can convince you you're God's people. There's only one thing. It's faith in Christ. Everything else is a joke. And Paul's going to prove it right now in what is him being abs. He's on a rant. He's riled up. If you want to see somebody get riled up, you should come. You should come. It's on Zoom right now because we can't meet. But on our Friday morning prayer uh, meeting, pretty much week in, week out, Gary Coleman comes. And he is fired up. He's fired up about politics. He's fired up about religion. <laughs> He's fired up about everything. And, man, he rolls. And it's awesome. That's what Paul's about to do. Let's go back to the text and watch Paul roll. He says, look, you think you've got re- good reason for confidence and traditions and doing the right thing and standards? Oh, I've got even more. Next slide, please. This, uh, by the way, I've, I've translated here. The way, this is exactly like how it is in the Greek. There's no verbs in the Greek. Paul's just like, he's rattling off. Eighth day circumcision. That's according to Torah. Uh, male babies are supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, so Paul's like, nailed it. I'm part of the people of Israel, Benjamin's tribe. This is important. Uh, in, 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 in Paul's day, very few Jews could trace their ethnic lineage uh, to the ancient tribes uh, because of the exile and the diaspora. Paul's like, I can, I can look at all of my, my ancestors. I know I go right back to Abraham through, through Benjamin. Right? I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. In terms of Torah observance, this is as to the law. Um, namas uh, in Greek is Paul's way of talking about Torah. I was a Pharisee. Pharisees are like the most intense, hardcore, religious people in Paul's day. They do everything they can to strictly, narrowly follow the law. You might think of Orthodox Jews today. That's very much Paul's more, was his, his moral compass. When it comes to zeal, passion, commitment, he was so committed to, to, to Yahweh and making sure Yahweh wasn't denigrated, he went after Christians, he oppressed them, he harassed them, he killed them. This is probably actually why he's so honestly upset in this text he probably feels guilty because for a long time in his life the way that he proved his commitment to god was to by torturing and killing christians and he sees the philippians being uh, harassed in exactly the same way he used to harass christians and he's terrified as to the righteousness that comes by the law, that's in Torah, not a single blemish on my record. Literally, it's blameless. I've glossed here because um, obviously Paul didn't perfectly keep the Mosaic law. That's impossible. He tells us in Romans that's impossible. But what he's kind of getting at is it's sort of like, say, you know, you're working for somebody and you go in for a performance review, right? And you're sitting there and the boss is like, flawless work, A+. Five stars, nothing bad to say. Does that mean that you're a perfect employee? No, it just means that from the boss's perspective, like from the outside perspective, you're, you're killing it. You're crushing it. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, look, all the Jews around me, all the other Pharisees, they all looked at me and they're like, that Paul's got it together. 
Not a single blemish on his record. He knows how to do Torah right. Paul says, I've written it all off. He's using economic language here, uh, profit and loss. It's like these things in the Jews' uh, imagination should have given him tons and tons of stocks. He should have been riding the S&P 500 all the way to the roof, and yet he, he just writes it off as a loss. He just counts it. He's like, nope, gone. And he's like, but, but it's more than that. It's not just my heritage. It's not just those things. I count everything. Everything is loss or damage. He says, I've been stripped of it all. And it's crap. And yeah, it's crap. Skubala. Um, it gets, a lot of translators have a, have a problem with this because uh, it's difficult to communicate exactly what Paul's saying uh, in English that's not offensive. So you'll get things like sewer filth. Uh, the King James Version says dung. Um, interestingly, skubala is not actually used in a lot of highbrow literature in the Greco-Roman world. We have a few examples, but uh, those are carefully circumscribed with context to make sure that uh, you know exactly what they're saying. In fact, uh, most of the time, skubala is a word that is, is in personal correspondence between people. And uh, so, for example, we have a, we have a papyrus from a, roughly Paul's day where this dad is telling a story to his son. He's like, yeah, the, uh, the driver, man, he, he went out to the market and he bought this uh, bundle of hay. And it was so rotten, so horribly rotten that it smelled like skubala. Uh, Strabo writes a letter where he's talking about a city that he visited. He's like, yeah, it's a great place. Really loved it a lot. Except that, um, you know, when I was looking at the streets, they were covered in scubala because they didn't uh, properly set up their sewer system. This is about as earthy as, uh, and salty as Paul's language gets. And to be fair, you know, in Greek, they don't have profanity the way that we do in English. There aren't like taboo words. Um, but this is the kind of language that you would just use with somebody that you're, you're close, close to to describe something that is horrible, that you don't want to smell or look at. But what about us? I mean, what about, what, about what, do we, what do we look at? What, what makes it for us? Like we're great. We're okay. See, for Paul, in Paul's day, it's eighth-day circumcision. You know, it's Benjamin's tribe, Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, oppressing the church, following the law. Those are the things that make it look like Paul's a good dude. Those are the things that he used to banish his badge and say, I'm a, I'm a good, I'm good with God. Let's be honest. Have you ever had a prayer that goes kind of like this? You're like, look God, I know I'm not perfect, but uh, I did do this. You know, I've got a lot of integrity, you know, at work. For example, I got a picture of this right here. I got, I, I, you know, I, at work, I, I, do the, I do a good job. I pay a lot of people. I get paid. I do, I do the work correctly. I'm, 
I'm a, I'm, look, and there's a lot of people who, who don't do that. There's a lot of people who are kind of skeezy, and they've, been, they've gotten stuff that I don't get because I've stuck to my guns. So look, I know I'm not perfect, but come on. When you're, when you're deciding about me, just you know, keep that in mind. Or you're like, look, God, I, okay, I made some mistakes, but on social media, man, I shame everyone who's not wearing a mask. I, I have been 100% in support of um, black and indigenous people of color. I am super, not like those other bigots at church. I mean, they mean well, but they don't have the sort of, they're not as enlightened as I am. And I have tirelessly advocated you know, for uh, welcome, being welcoming to LGBTQI+. I drive a Prius. Um, so, and that, I didn't have to buy a Prius, God. And I wasn't just doing it so I could get into the carpool lane. I was doing it for the climate, for, for the environment. So, when you're deciding about whether or not we're good, I want you to keep that in mind. Okay, just... Hey, God, look, um, a lot of people these days, you know, they use the uh, contraception. They only have, like, one child or no children. I don't want to say that my family is amazing, but come on. We are. And I don't want to say that all the other kids at church are kind of terrible, but they are. And we're doing it right. Like, our kids are way better than all the rest. And it's not, look, I'm not saying that, God, God, it's not... I'm doing it for you, okay? I want, because I know that you want to have great families. And so I'm, you know, we're really working hard to make sure that we're doing parenting right. And so I, look, and, okay. Yeah, we're, it's not perfect, okay? But, but men, compared to, you might want to, just when you're, when you're deciding whether or not we're good, just Remember. We adopted all those kids. House is happy. God, look, here's the deal. Okay, I, okay, I'm not perfect. I've made some mistakes. I get that, but I don't know if you noticed. Um, I'm giving thirteen percent. Thirteen. There's a lot of people at the church who are not even given five, okay? And uh, I'm, I'm not saying they're bad. They're not bad people. It's just that when it comes to doing right by the, all you asked for was 10%. If that, I'm up to 13. Just when you're deciding whether or not we're good, just keep that in mind. Eighth-day circumcision. People of Israel, Benjamin's tribe. When it comes to the law, not a blemish on my record. Zeal, I went after the church. Observance, a Pharisee. Surely, surely, we're good. It's all crap.
Which isn't to say that, you know, those things aren't good, right? It's not, not, like, it's not like we're not, no one's, no one's saying like, give less, darn it. There's no point. <laughs> stop, stop raising good kids. Be, have no intent. No one's saying any of that. Uh, and Paul's not sitting there, not, Paul's not sitting there being like, I'm going to stop being, you know, Jewish. You know, you can't, he's, not, he's, not, he's not sitting there saying, I'm going to stop, you know, trying to follow Jesus or whatever. It, but what he's saying is, he's like, he's like, that's not what I depend on to know that I'm good with God. Okay? And that's not it. That's not the key to me knowing that me and God are good. So what is? What's the key to know that me and God are simpatico? That we're on the same page? If it's not, if you can't figure it out by doing the chop chop for the, for the dudes and, and observing Shabbat and not eating pork, and if you can't do it by being a Pharisee, and if you can't do it by having integrity in the workplace and raising good kids and doing all the things, advocating for, the, for social justice and those who are disadvantaged or giving a lot of money, if you can't do it with any of those things, what is it? Well, first, next thing in your note sheets is all the things we think that will make us good with God are blank. You can fill in blank with everything from garbage, refuse, sewer filth, dung, poo-poo, and you can go as far as you want because those are all legitimate translations of what Paul says. But all the things that we think will make us good with God are that. And then, so in the middle of this super raw, honestly, kind of angry diatribe, sarcastic, acerbic, you know, rant that Paul goes on, he has this, this beautiful gem, one of, the, one of his, like, all-time greatest, most glorious lines, just right there, smack dab in the middle, and he goes right back to crazy town. But, but, but read it with me. It's so, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. He says, I consider everything as loss or damage when compared to the sublimity of an intimate relationship with Messiah Jesus, my Lord. If uh, older translations um, are, try to be a little less interpretive, um, and that's respectable, but I'll explain why. But they'll say things like um, the excellency of, no- of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's, um, that's a very wooden translation, but it really does not capture what Paul's saying. Um, part of the issue is syntax. Uh, the word there that I have sublimity and you'll, you'll get excellence or surpass, surpassing value. It's weird. In Greek, it's, it's a verb um, that we don't have in English. <laughs> so uh, English people, or in English, we try to translate it as a noun. But really, what it, the, the verb kind of is like all of these things, the, what it, no, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus surpasses that. So like whatever it is that you have that, that, that makes you good with God, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus surpasses it. And as high as you go, and as much as you, whatever it is, you can pile up all the different things you think are amazing. The knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, surpasses, excels, goes beyond that. And, and so in English, excellency, surpassing value, or I've said sublimity. Of what? Of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've said intimate relationship. That word Greek in, in Greek is gnosis. It does mean knowledge, and it can mean like comprehension. But whenever it's predicated of, a, of a, another person, it always means something like personal acquaintance or uh, relationship. 
So, for example, the verbal form of this word is in, in Genesis 3.1, when Adam knew Eve, and then she conceived. That's gnosko. It's the verbal form of gnosis. Um, uh, in, ancient, in the ancient world, you get like, uh, do you have knowledge of Augustus? And what that, that question is, is have you met Augustus? Similarly, um, if you're watching Downton Abbey, which uh, my wife is forcing me to watch right now, you're like, Lord Atherton, do you have knowledge of Lord Byron? It's like, oh, yes, Lord Byron and I met at our last uh, Harvest Festival. Okay, that's, that's kind of where it is. So it, it's like acquaintance, but it can go as far as from acquaintance all the way to uh, romantic intimacy. And the point being relationship, right? And so when, when Paul says knowledge of, Jesus, of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, he's saying a relationship. And, and if you know anything about Paul, his relationship with Jesus isn't like... His relationship with Jesus is a familial one. It's like they're family. They're really, really close. And one of the problems that we have, um, you know, is we, we, as human beings, we naturally think of God as so far beyond, and God is beyond, God transcends, that, that almost all of our thinking about God is transactional, right? It's just our natural go-to way of dealing, and that's the, the way we naturally go to dealing with people that we don't know that well, right? It's a transaction. We, I don't know you, you don't know me, I owe you this, you owe me that, whatever, but that's, that's kind of how we function when we don't know someone that well. That's a natural human inclination. But what's, what's fascinating about Paul, and, and really uh, John in the New Testament and the Old Testament, is over and over and over again, uh, God's relationship to human beings is described in familial terms, right? So Yahweh is the father of Jesus Christ, and Jesus says that you call God daddy, right? And Paul will call uh, Jesus, you know, a, a brother or the first fruits. Um, in John, right, the, the church is about to get married, the bride and the groom, like we're getting married to Jesus. There's all this, this imagery, and all of it is, suggests a really deep, tight family relationship. And so, I, I, I honestly, I think one of the, like a really great kind of just back-of-the-envelope way to think about what Paul means when he says an intimate relationship with Christ Jesus my Lord is just imagine somebody in your life with whom you have a really healthy, close relationship. If you're in love, this might be the person you're in love with. If you're married, it might be your spouse, but maybe not. But it might be, hopefully it is. Maybe you have a really close friend. Maybe you're really close with your kids or your parents. What does that relationship look like? What's it characterized by? Just for the sake of time, let's just skip down to the all five. I've just thrown out. These are just some ideas. You enjoy spending time together. You enjoy getting to know one another. You have mutual trust, commitment. You share values and goals. You're able to confess and forgive. I mean, that doesn't seem very controversial, does it? 
Like, that seems like if you're talking about someone with whom you have, you know, a really tight relationship, all those things should be in play in one way or another. And more. I mean, that's a weird thing about a relationship, right? Like, okay, so it does not take much for me to know whether or not I'm on the outs with my wife, right? I don't have to sit there and be like, is she mad at me? No. I know. And likewise, if I'm not being like, you know, all warm and fuzzy, it's not like she's like, is he being cold? No one has to sit there and like assess a good relationship, right? You don't have to say like, is this relationship functioning on all cylinders right now? No one says that because everyone knows what a re- like, like you, you can feel it. It's like there's something really deep about a, a, a tight relationship where when it's off kilter, when it's, when it's fractured a little bit, everybody feels it. Like it's something that you just get in your bones. And yet you can quantify it by, you know, are we spending time, knowing one another, do we have a lot of knowledge, are we emotionally connected? You can, you can do all that, but you, that, that's, not, that's not how we, uh, human beings, that's not how we think relationships. Relationships are intuitive, and they're very, like, our, our, our mutual knowledge of one another causes us to be able to sense where we are. And Paul's point is he's like, all these things that you think make you good with God. I'm telling you, there's nothing better than just being with Jesus. It's funny, you know, lockdown has stripped us of a lot of things. And maybe in some respects, that's a good thing. Maybe it's good that that lockdown has stripped us of all of these sort of other things that bring us joy and meaning and, 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 and satisfaction in life, maybe it's a good thing that we can't get that from other people because what Paul's saying is that, guess what? It doesn't get better than what you get from Jesus. And concomitantly, and on the other hand, if you don't have that with Jesus, if you're looking at these things, great relationship, you're like, eh, don't know about that. Don't know if I have that with Jesus. I don't know if I really care about getting to know Jesus. I don't know if I really care about spending time with Jesus. I'm not sure that it really, I don't know. Maybe our goals and values are like on the same page, but I don't know, maybe not. I don't feel real comfortable uh, saying I'm sorry, or do I even have anything to say sorry for? If that's where you're at, then on Paul's, Paul's thinking, you are missing out on the greatest relationship you could possibly have. And if you're wondering how you can get that back on track, or you can it, talk to me. We're, we're, we're short on time, and I don't want to uh, belabor the point. But, but there are, you can email me, tom at coastbabble.org, and, and I'd love to have that conversation because, because that, that, that journey that you have with Christ, that closening of relationship, that sense of intimacy, and that sense of, of, of knowing one another, being known, of being forgiven, being loved, though, though that experience, Paul says, it's sublime. It does not get better. It, and, and in the midst of lockdown, when he's been stripped of everything, everything in his life that could have made him right with God, made him good with God, all of it's gone. He says, I don't care. It's all crap. Because I know Jesus. Let's pray.
Gracious God, I just, I pray for all of our people, um, near and far, everyone separated and um, a, lot of, a lot of us anxious about um, the future and how long this goes on and worrying about um, being together and worrying about um, money and shelter and all those things. I just pray for all of us, God, that, that we would take this moment of being stripped and say, okay, this is gone. Now I want to know Jesus more. I want to get closer with Jesus and I, I, I want that sublime experience that Paul talks about. I want to have that deep, powerful knowledge. I want to be close with Jesus like I am with my wife or my husband or my, my kids or my parents or my friends. I want to know that, that peace and I want to know that joy. And God, I pray that this community be a place where we foster that, where we encourage each other and come up with ideas and ways that we can spur each other on to know Jesus closer. And that we'll all count everything else as crap. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.